you can turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. I'll be there in just a moment. Um, Colossians chapter 1. All right, we're all good. Well, as I said, we're starting a series this morning on the basics of soul care, and we want to grow together in our ability to use the scriptures to address the problems that we face in the world. I would say, first and foremost, you should think about this series as how can I counsel my own heart? How can I minister the word of God to my own heart and grow more through the series? I think a second goal would be that some would, uh, that, that, that we would also then say, wow, I'm so amazed by the sufficiency of scripture uh, to help the problems that we face that I want to be able to help other people in, in our body here and even maybe beyond and pointing them to the scriptures, relevant places and helping them think through the problems that they're facing. Uh, and then even I would pray, and I have prayed, that even some, a few, would even get a, a, a special passion for these things and wa- would want to even get equipped even further to be even more skilled in handling the scriptures in these ways. As we begin, I, uh, I want to tell you a story about uh, Jay Adams, who Jay is kind of like the, um, the Martin Luther of the biblical counseling movement, the modern biblical counseling movement. Of course, uh, biblical counseling has been around for a very long time since the scriptures. You know, God counseled Adam and Eve in the garden, and then Cain, and... Um, so we see it throughout scripture and history. But uh, there was kind of a rediscovery of and calling the church back to the sufficiency of scripture in the ministry of Jay Adams. He was professor at Westminster Theological Seminary and uh, has written, um, he's since gone to be with the Lord, but he's written voluminously on this subject. He once had the opportunity to go to Germany and speak to uh, over like a thousand uh, uh, psychiatrists and psychologists um, about uh, that field. And he got up and he essentially said, this is kind of my paraphrase, he says, the thing that we have in common together is that we all want to see people change. We all want to help people change. But the difference between us is that none of you can agree upon what people are supposed to change into. <laughs> and that's essentially what he says. He says, but... As a Christian, I know exactly what people need to change into. And when it comes to uh, help people with the problems that they face, you'd be maybe surprised to learn that there are over 300 distinctive theories of psychotherapy in the world today. John Street asked this question. He says, if you knew there were over 300 distinctive approaches to anesthesia, would you go into surgery? (laughs) Most people would not. Because the fact Uh, is there are so many approaches and therefore so many possible outcomes, some of which could could be very uncertain and could mean they might die or be maimed for life. And yet every Christian, equipped with the authoritative and sufficient word of God, can see quite plainly from Scripture that the goal that people would be changed into is Christlikeness, is Christlikeness. Uh, If someone is not a Christian, it is for them to become a Christian, to embrace Christ. And if they are a Christian, it's then to increasingly be conformed in their thinking, 
in their affections and in their actions to Christ-likeness. That is the goal. And yet, the world is very confused as to what people should be changed into. What is the goal? What is the standard? And how does it, uh, how is it accomplished? This is the purpose and goal of soul care, or we might say biblical counseling or biblical discipleship. And so we, I said, turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, because this is a great starting point for us in this series. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. And this is just like, should be, I mean, we should memorize this verse, put it on a, on a card, put it in your pocket, get this thing in your mind. I mean, this is the goal. Colossians 1, 28 says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is so key. This is so fundamental, so foundational. I just wanted to point out a couple observations from this text. Notice the person of Christ in discipleship. This is the powerful proclamation that we have. It's the person of Christ. He begins to him we proclaim. It's like he fronts Christ. He is the one we proclaim. So biblical discipleship, biblical soul care, biblical counseling has to have Christ as the foundation, as the focus. He is the beginning, the end of it. He's our goal. He's what we're seeking to be transformed into, and he is how we are transformed. So the person of Christ in discipleship. Also, we see the procedure for discipleship. The procedure for discipleship. Notice these different words he uses. Warning, teaching, and then with all wisdom. Uh, we get our, our word, uh, maybe you've heard of nuthetic counseling. That's actually uh, really just gone out of usage because people are like, what does that mean? It's a Greek word, and it's nutheteo, which means, really, this is a bad way to do word studies, but sometimes it works, you know, where you take a word apart, and you say, oh, this part means this, this means that, but actually, it kind of helps a little bit in this sense. Uh, Nous is like the idea of mind. It's the word for mind, and then tithemi is to put or to place something, so it's like to put or place into the mind, and you could think to put it in, put truth in, to remind people of the truth, to warn them, to admonish them, uh, to exhort them, and so, this is the procedure, warning of discipleship. We warn people, we teach people, and we do it with all wisdom. And then notice the people to disciple. Three times in the text, it says everyone. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So this is, a, this is not a limited ministry. And then the purpose of discipleship that we may present everyone complete or mature in Christ. This is the goal. This is the aim. This is the standard. And so this already right here gives us just such a, a clarity in what we're trying to do, what we're trying to do in biblical discipleship in soul care. What is the primary purpose then of this class that we want to uh, look at in the near future here? Well, I want you to be convinced of the, sufficient, the sufficiency of Scripture for the problems that people face in life. And then, of course, I've already mentioned a few of these other things already, that you would become better at self-counsel, at helping yourself think rightly, uh, whether you're facing suffering or sin in your life, and then also to be able to help others, that you would become better equipped uh, to be confident and competent to help others with the problems that they face. 
And so this morning, we, we just want to set the groundwork. We just want to look at some basics. And so we're going to call this first lesson the preliminaries of biblical soul care. The preliminaries of soul care. The preliminaries. So you just, you just know me already. These are all going to start with P. Yeah, <laughs> for the foreseeable future. I worked hard on this. This has been in the hopper for a while. Uh, the Wah Hopper, uh, and uh, trying to get this thing ready. And, uh, and so I'm finally, I'm very excited to just get underway. And I've just been piling, piling, piling data uh, and just trying to formulate it now and get it into a workable, um, packaged content for us. So, uh, so we want to set the groundwork and look at the preliminaries of biblical soul care. Uh, I don't know how far we're going to get, but we're going to try and get as far as we can, and then we'll just pick up the next week. So we but my hope and goal is to look at three things this morning as far as preliminaries go. First, the definition of biblical soul care, uh, the demand for biblical soul care, and then the distinctives of biblical soul care. So first, let's get underway and consider the definition of biblical soul care. Or, I mean, you could say biblical counseling, biblical discipleship. And for our purposes, we are going to use these all pretty synonymously, right? So we're going to use the term biblical soul care, biblical counseling, and biblical discipleship essentially as synonyms. Um, Paul Tauchus in his book, Counseling One Another, he says this, we must consciously use the terms counseling and discipleship interchangeably, or even together, discipleship counseling, in order to communicate that counseling is not merely the specialized ministry of a few professionals, but rather an intensely focused personal aspect of the discipleship process for all believers. And so I think that's helpful to, to use those terms that way. You might categorize discipleship as the broader category and then counseling maybe as a subset of that if you wanted to for more crisis situations. Um, but counseling and soul care is essentially the work of discipleship in the church. And, and you could categorize discipleship into two categories, crisis discipleship, and then we might call it common discipleship, right? So common discipleship, I would say, or soul care, common soul care, is like, if we were to put it in the physical realm, we might say, eat well, exercise, get good sleep, right? Those are all pretty basic things, right? Um, and most average people would know those things and be able to just help another person, like, oh, you're not sleeping well. All right, you need to get better sleep. Hey, uh, you, you can't eat like that and live for very long. You know, it's like those kind of things. Uh, then you have crisis soul care and discipleship, which is more like surgery, right? Uh, you may want to go to someone who has a little more experience and care with the scalpel <laughs> on these issues. And so sometimes uh, believers go, oh, I'm, I mean, I have a basic gist of like, take your vitamins and some of these basic things, getting them in the word. And, um, but uh, there's some thorny things here that I'm not sure about. And maybe that's where someone who has more skill at the word can come alongside them and help them for a short season to think rightly about these things and come up with a plan. So think of common discipleship and crisis discipleship. And that common discipleship should be happening among all of us just constantly, where we're just encouraging one another with a word, building each other up uh, with the one another's of Scripture. Um, and, of course, that crisis counseling can happen in behind the scenes, and some people don't even know it's happening. But 
so that's what we're thinking. So let's, let's then think about disciple, discipleship. What are we talking about here? These are kind of Bible terms. So uh, I remember the first time a youth pastor growing up uh, told, told me about discipleship, disciple. I had no idea what he was talking about. What are these terms? Uh, well, really, essentially, we're talking about one who follows one's teaching. It's not only a pupil, but an adherent, according to one uh, Bible dictionary. Another, uh, Jim Berg writes this, discipleship is helping another believer make biblical change toward Christ-likeness, helping others in the sanctification process. That's pretty, pretty basic, pretty simple. Um, helping people change into Christ-likeness. That, that's what we're talking about. That's discipleship. So what does this involve? Well, let me give you a variety of definitions of biblical counseling from shorter, simple ones to somewhat longer ones. And just for your own purposes, uh, think about uh, commonalities that you notice in these. And by all means, I mean, throw up your hand. This, uh, I'll give opportunity for interaction as well, but if you're like, what do you mean by that? I mean, there's going to be a lot of that, I think, in this series, you know, and clarification. So by all means, um, happy to interact and, and dialogue. Uh, here's a, a basic definition. David Pallison, in his book, Seeing with New Eyes, says this, counseling can be defined as simply an as intentionally helpful conversations. <laughs> now, that's in, intentionally very broad, and he'll get, even get uh, a lot more specific. But just think about that. Intentionally helpful conversations. Good. I like simple. Um, Keith Lambert writes this in his book, A Theology of Biblical Counseling. He says, quote, counseling is a conversation where one party with questions, problems, and trouble seeks assistance from someone they believe has answers, solutions, and help. That's good. So you have a person with questions on certain issues, and they come to a person that they think might have some answers to that. Once again, he's intentionally being broad in his definition, and, um, but of course they'll get more focused. Notice also that they're not saying necessarily biblical counseling, these first two, right? They're just saying generally this is kind of what counseling is, intentionally helpful conversations. Um, you've got questions, you believe this person has answers, but now we're going to start getting a little bit more particular about biblical counseling. Paul Tauchus writes this, biblical counseling is helping one another within the body of Christ to grow to maturity in him. This is, can't you see Colossians 1 coming out here? You see uh, the conformity to Christ as the goal, helping one another within the body. Uh, John MacArthur writes this. He says, quote, authentic biblical counseling is simply biblical wisdom properly applied by spiritually mature counselors. I love that definition. It's very short, concise, simple. And it just gets at the root of biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom let me give it again. Authentic biblical counseling is simply biblical wisdom properly applied by spiritually mature counselors. Uh, Tauchus gives a more uh, broader definition, or not broader, but uh, focused. Um, he says, counseling will be presented as a targeted form of discipleship, an intensely focused and personal one another ministry aimed at the serious development of serious disciples. Uh, Joel James, in his book, Counsel with Confidence, says this, quote, biblical counseling, this is a longer definition, biblical counseling can be defined as using the Bible in wise and appropriate ways to bring God-glorifying change to God's people. That's not all of it, but that's pretty good, right? 
pretty good. And then he says this, it applies the theological truths, commands, and promises of the Bible to the problems of daily life so that people change more and more into conformity to the character of Jesus Christ, living more and more for his glory in biblical wisdom, righteousness, peace, stability, and strength. That's very good. Um, I've got so many, I'm just going to skip a couple of them, so sorry. Stuart Scott has a great definition. Um, He writes, biblical counseling is ministering the word of God to believers with humility, compassion, and accountability to bring about abiding hope, change, and usefulness as they come to know Jesus more and more for the glory of God. What I like about Scott's definition is that he, and the others do this as well, but he's more explicit in his. He says, biblical counseling is ministering the word of God to believers. So he's like, what about unbelievers? Well, you can't counsel an unbeliever. You can't counsel an unbeliever because they need to be saved. They need to be saved. They need the gospel, right? Think about it like this. What is the purpose of helping two unbelievers improve their marriage if they're just going to become, like, if you focus on saying, like, let's just help you to communicate better. Well, essentially, if you succeed in that and you don't get the gospel to them and you don't see them saved, then you just help them become better worshipers of themselves, to help them have better tactics for getting what they want from their spouse or in their marriage. And so the starting point has to be the gospel. And now, of course, does that mean like you don't talk to them, you don't meet with them? No, of course, because the gospel has relevance for believers ongoingly, but it's, uh, so it's not like you just start with the gospel and then once, once they get saved, you don't talk about the gospel anymore. No, it's relevant. So of course you can talk about their problems, but you're constantly bringing them back to the gospel and saying, really, uh, you're weaving those back and saying like, you know, really what you need first and foremost is the gospel. So this actually becomes an incredible outreach uh, because as people have problems, we all have problems, but you're able to point them quickly to, you know what your ultimate need is? It's Christ. So this becomes very evangelistic for some. Some think they're Christians and uh, they're, they're struggling so much. And it, sometimes it's just because like, wait, I don't even think you have the spirit of God in you. Maybe that's why you're not changing uh, because you don't know the Lord. And so it becomes a great opportunity for evangelism. We're going to talk about that more, about uh, helping unbelievers and helping them, how to approach them in a, in a, in a unique way when we get into the gospel and biblical soul care. Let me give you one more definition here. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Um, several years ago, I was asked to counsel a couple who was having marriage difficulties. And so I'm, I'm kind of telling this, but also seeing if you would agree. And the, the guy was a firm, committed believer. The lady was marginal mm-hmm. and would kind of say, eh, I'm just not sure. Yeah. So the first thing I said was, I can only help you if you're willing to believe that this Bible in front of us is the absolute authority of God. Yeah. And perfect in all its ways and all that. And she said, okay, I'll buy it. Yeah, yeah. So rather than saying, Absolutely. you just need to be saved first, yeah, yeah. here's the gospel, and call me when you're ready, I just said, as long as you believe this is absolute truth, I can possibly help you. Yeah. Because it kind of backdoored her a little bit. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing, like, this is a great, this is what I'm talking about, ask clarifying questions, because in this series, I think, more than others, there, there's the possibility where you, you hear me say something, and you go like, what? You know, 
you got to ask a follow-up because there may be a clarification. Because, yeah, of course, that is a great way to approach it. Because I will meet with someone as long as they want to if they're an unbeliever and, and just continue to work with them on the problems that they're facing. So I'm not saying we're not going to talk about any of those things. Not, not at all. In fact, the first time I meet with someone in more of a crisis situation, I just want to ask a ton of questions. Do little talking and just gather as much data as I can and go, okay, here, here's a kind of a portrait, a picture of this, uh, because it's folly to give an answer before one hears. And so you want to gather all the information, and then you can begin to create a plan for that person to help them to apply the scriptures to them. And so I think it's helpful to begin to talk about these issues, but you're just constantly coming back to this aspect of, but you need the gospel. I mean, just think about it like this. Think about your kids, right? If your kids are in the home and they're not saved yet, do you just say like, well, we, we, we can't talk about any of your problems because you're not a believer yet. You just need to get saved. No, of course, you're going to help them to think through, here's how the Bible addresses this issue. But you're going to constantly remind them, but there's no power to do that if you don't actually know Christ. So let me remind you of the gospel again. So I think that it's not a simplistic thing that's like, with the first time you see it, well, you're not a believer. And, and the problem is, too, sometimes people don't realize it either. So you've got to come back to the gospel constantly in those times to show its relevancy because some people down the line go, you know what? I don't think I know the Lord. Now, I'm not saying this is what always happens, but, you know, in certain cases. So I think, yeah, you don't just say, well, we can't talk. But I think that's a great way to say, hey, be upfront about your approach. We're going to talk about the Bible. We're going to go to the scriptures because we believe this about the Bible. And so if you're willing to do that, we are totally willing to meet with you and help you for as long as you want to. And sometimes people just give up and they just say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to hear that. Um, but, uh, and of course, we're, we're talking about more, you know, focused counseling here, but, so is that helpful clarification? Yeah, okay, yeah. So we're not simplistic in that. We'll get into that with uh, distinctives, distinctions, distinctiveness. All right. Where do we get this from? Well, in part, we see various commands ensuring us to do this for one another. There's different key words in the New Testament. Um, and uh, you have words, I'm not going to give you all the Greek words, but uh, some words that have the idea of to call to one's side, to, to call to one's aid, to comfort, to exhort, uh, to call for something. Uh, you have other words that speak about urging someone forward, to pushing them on to encouraging them, to motivating them. Uh, other words that speak of admonishing one another, warning, correcting through instruction and warning. And then others that are admonishing by way of exhorting and advising. So we have lots of these words in the New Testament that are given to just common believers, average believers, of what they're to do for one another. And so we're to use the word of God skillfully to help people with the problems that they face. This is what we're supposed to do. And so we might summarize that discipleship, soul care, counseling involves lovingly confronting those who are caught in sin and then also lovingly caring for those who are suffering. Let me give you two passages, and we're going to come back to some of these multiple times, but as far as coming to those who are, uh, confronting those who are caught in sin, go to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And we read this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
So notice here how comprehensive this is. If anyone is caught in any transgression, right? Uh, this is whatever, you know, this is dealing with sin though. Now, he says, who's supposed to do this? Who's supposed to be the practitioner? You who are spiritual. And you think, well, what does that mean? You who are spiritual. Well, you know, you might cop out and go like, oh, I'm not that spiritual, so I can't do this. This is going to leave it to someone else. Well, what is the context of Galatians 6? It's Galatians 5. What does Galatians 5 talk about? The fruit of the Spirit, right? Which means you're saved, right? It means you're a Christian because if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, then what do you have? The deeds of the flesh. So he's saying if you have the Spirit of God, the Spirit produces fruit in you, the fruit of repentance, and is increasingly producing these things in you, so you would be spiritual. So the spiritual person is the saved person in context. So he's not saying this is super Christian work. This is every Christian work. Every Christian is called to the work of discipleship. Now, is there skill that some have more than others because they've studied the work? Yeah, of course. But this is simply saying, if anyone is caught in any transgression, and the, the assumption is you know about it, you who are a Christian, you are her spiritual, you have, the, you have borne fruit by the Spirit's work in your life, you should restore them in a spirit of gentleness, and you should keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. So this is what we are called to do. That's with sinning. With suffering, think of a passage like, a lot of passages on this, but 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul speaks about comforting one another. 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us, comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So, biblical discipleship involves lovingly confronting those who are caught in sin and lovingly caring for those who are suffering. We'll, we'll talk about this more in a future lesson, that we are both sinners and we are sufferers. Right? So not every issue is necessarily a personal sin issue. Sometimes discipleship involves coming alongside someone because they're suffering in some way, physically, uh, relationally, uh, financially, whatever. You know. and, and so you're coming alongside to bring comfort, encouragement, perspective. And then sometimes, though, the issue is sin. We need to confront sin lovingly, gently, patiently, with the goal of restoring. Let me give you um, just a perspective here and, and then walk you through kind of a... Uh, a graph that I don't have to show you, but maybe I'll print it out and give it to you next time. Um, really what we're seeing from this is that counseling, discipleship, soul care is a theological endeavor. It's a theological endeavor. Um, it has to be. It has to be a theological endeavor because of the issues that we're dealing with. We're dealing with the soul, right? And uh, we were at this um, conference Richie, Mike, and I, a couple weeks ago in Florida, and Jerry Ragg, the pastor there at Grace Emanuel Bible Church, said, um, he asked the question, who is, let's see how he said it, who is most equipped to uh, address the matters of the soul? Uh, and uh, is it the world? Is it a bunch of unbelievers who some don't even believe that there's an immaterial soul? 
They're materialists. No, they're not uh, the ones competent to counsel and equip. It is those who have the spirit of God, those you who are spiritual and have the word of God that says about who man is and who he is in relationship to God and his world and what the problem is. Do unbelievers make uh, valid observations at times? Yes, they do. But can they interpret those correctly to get at the, what the problem is and what the solution is? No, they cannot. Um, think about the Ken Ham and uh, Bill Nye debate on creation evolution. And in that debate, Ken Ham made a great observation about the issue, the core of the issue. And he essentially said this, that, listen, we are not looking at different fossils here. We are looking at the same fossils. We're, we have the same data set to look at. However, we have different lenses. We have different presuppositions that we come to the data with. And we interpret that data differently because of our presuppositions, because of our worldview. And so it's a worldview issue. And so I think we could say that same thing about how to help people. The world has all these theories about how to help people. And at times they make some good observations about human behavior, patterns. Um, in fact, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is in its fifth edition, which is like the, the Bible of uh, psychology and psychologists, uh, which basically is just a book of disorders and whatnot. And they're just categorizing behavior patterns and they're giving them titles and names. And, uh, and it's, it's constantly in flux, it's constantly changing. But they're trying to observe patterns. And they don't always get it right, but sometimes they're noticing things that are, okay, this is, this is a pattern that we see. But the problem is, can they, do they have the lens, do they have the right worldview to interpret this so as to actually help someone in the way that God's word would say they should be helped? And the answer is no, they do not. Um, in fact, they don't often even use scripture at all. Uh, well, they don't. they don't. I mean, on the secular side. Uh, so we're going to talk about that more. But it's a, I want you to see this essentially a theological endeavor because we're bringing our theology to bear upon this on what the issues actually are and then how to help people. And let me explain this to you with really a, a chart that I could think I can effectively explain without actually having a visual aid. But um, think of a triangle, okay? Think of a triangle. And of course, on the bottom, you have like the most foundational level, and then you have a smaller level that's like, it builds on that, and then on that, and on that. And so that's what I'm going to do here. Okay, so first, the first layer of the foundation of this triangle um, is and we're going to talk about different uh, studies in Bible, right? Bible studies. The first layer is the canon. You think, what, what do you mean canon? You know, not that kind of canon, but the canon of literature. We're talking about what are the books of the Bible? I mean, what, what is a Bible, right? Uh, what consists of the Bible? And of course, you could think as well of like textual criticism, which is saying like, uh, what, what, are, what is the actual text that we have what, that has been preserved as we compare the manuscripts? So what is the Bible? That's the most foundational level so that we know what our source is, what, what the authority is. It's the Bible. It's the canon. It's the 66 books. On top of that then, that's the foundation. Then on top of that, we have what we call hermeneutics, right? Hermeneutics, which Herman who? <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, <laughs> so we're talking about the principles of interpretation of a text. And in this case, we're talking about the interpretation of the Bible. So hermeneutics deals with the principles, uh, really, you might say the art and science of biblical interpretation. And so there are things like, uh, we say literal, grammatical, historical, 
uh, hermeneutics or interpretation. And in, in other words, we're saying literal, what we mean by that is authorial intent. What did the author mean when he wrote this text? Then we're looking at historical. We're looking at what is the history? What is the historical background for this that we might understand uh, the text rightly and get it to the authorial intent? And then grammar. So we're looking at syntax and relationships of words to one another, word meanings and and all these kind of things, forms. And, And so we're trying to get at what is the meaning of the text, right? That's hermeneutics, the principles of interpretation. Okay, so then that's the layer. Uh, added to another layer of the pr- pyramid, so you have, what, are, what is the Bible? 66 books. On top of that, you have hermeneutics, the principles of how to study the text and get at the meaning. And then on top of that, we have another layer we call exegesis. And this isn't like putting an X on Jesus. Um, it is like EX, exegesis, as in excavating in a construction site. You're trying to dig out the meaning of the text. So really, exegesis is just... Um, when hermeneutics puts on its working clothes, right? It's like, you go to work. So hermeneutics is the theory. It's saying, here's how you get at the meaning. But when you actually do it, and you say, all right, give me a text, and let's, let's practice this. Let's put hermeneutics into practice with an actual Bible text. You are doing exegesis. You are using those principles to excavate, exegete the meaning and expose the meaning of the text. And so that's exegesis. That's in contrast to eisegesis, which is E-I-S, ice, reading into. Uh, it's the preposition ice, uh, which is into or in. And so you don't want to read into the text a foreign meaning because you're looking for the authorial intent. You're leading to ek. Ek is out of, from. From the text, you want to derive the meaning of the text. So that's exegesis. So then when you do that, when you take the Bible and you have principles of hermeneutics, and you apply that to a text, you're doing exegesis, what is the product of that? What do you get from that? What you get is biblical theology. Now, that's not just theology that's biblical. That is really theology that looks at the storyline of Scripture. It looks at what is the Bible about? And so you can do this in a lot of ways. You can look at the biblical theology of a particular author. Like, what is Moses' theology? Or you could look at what's Paul's theology, or Peter's theology, or John's theology. Or you could say, what is a particular theme in the Bible, and how does it develop and progress and get defined as, the, as time goes on? So the, the, the biblical theology of kingdom that starts in the garden. Adam and Eve are like little kings, or uh, Adam and Eve are like a, a, a king and a queen of ruling over the creation, and it develops over and over, and you get to Christ, who is the king of kings, lord of lords, and we reign with him. And so you see, I'm just skipping over a lot in that biblical theology, just for the, <laughs> lots and lots. <laughs> um, but you, you see how it develops over time. That's biblical theology. It, it deals with propositional statements of truth, doctrine, Then you have, on top of that, systematic theology. Systematic theology. And systematics is like the fruit of biblical theology. The idea of this is you're categorizing um, topics and you're saying all that the Bible says on that topic. And historically, biblical theology has covered 10 major subjects, okay? It's covered the subject of bibliology, which is the study of the Bible. All that the Bible says about itself. Theology proper which is the study of God. So his, his perfections, his attributes, his nature, his uh, triunity. Uh, and then you have the doctrine of Christology, which is the doctrine of Christ, his person and his work. The doctrine of pneumatology, uh, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, his person and his works. Uh, you have the, the doctrine of 
anthropology, which is the doctrine of man, the study of man. Uh, then you have harmardiology, which is the study of sin uh, and its effects and its definition. And then you have the doctrine of soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. The doctrine of salvation, how is a person saved and sanctified and then glorified. And then you have the doctrine of ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. Ecclesia, church. Uh, ecclesiology, study of the church. So the study of the church. Uh, then you have angelology, which is the study of, you guessed it, angels, demons, and Satan. Then you have eschatology, which is the study of last things. Okay, so you see these 10 categories primarily that you are synthesizing all, all of your work that you've done. You've taken the Bible, you've applied hermeneutics, you've done exegesis, you've gotten biblical theology, and now you have systematized on every subject in these areas, what does the Bible say about it uh, for, for a complete whole? But we don't stop there. We have one more level to get to, and the triangle is now complete with practical theology. Practical theology. This is application. This is implications. This is how we live, how we change, how we grow. And all of that stands upon the foundation that comes underneath of it. So here's a, here's a helpful principle someone pointed out. If you do steps one to five, but you don't get to step six, or I don't know how many steps I gave you, but if you don't get to the last step uh, and you're doing the others, you are not faithful, right? You, you've just given, you've parsed verbs and you've talked about theology and stuff, but if you haven't brought it to the people and said like, what does this mean for us? It's like you, you just stopped short of the goal line. It's like you got to the one yard line and you're like, all right, game over. We're done. <laughs> what? No, get into the end zone. And so that's what we're trying to do is get to practical theology. That is what this series is about, practical theology. Now, that means we are at times going to have to go back and to show how this becomes relevant because we're looking at theology and exegesis, and we want it to be born out of that. But if you do practical theology apart from the other things, you don't have a foundation, and you just go anywhere you want. So that is important. So theology... Uh, theology is foundational for soul care and counseling. Theology is for living. Theology is for living. Okay. We did not get as far as I thought we would get, but that's fine. Uh, we can save the next one because uh, it is right here. Let me just take a question or two uh, if you have them, um, and we just defined it. <laughs> we'll look at the demand next time and the distinctives. Yeah. Yeah. And you express, well, I don't know, I don't, I don't know how to, I know Yeah, yeah. But they need the gospel. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to talk about this more in a a future lesson, but essentially, here's why I think this becomes so practical, because it does not allow us to hide the gospel from people, right? Because it just forces us to say and get to the issue. But once again, we don't do it in a simplistic kind of way, as in like, let me just tell you the, you know, uh, 
The Romans wrote again, right? We're not simplistic in it. We understand that we have to, we want to ask them lots of questions and say, what is the issue? What's going on? What's going on in your life? And we're showing care, compassion, patience. And, and we say, you know, maybe we bring in things from our own lives and we say like, you know, God has worked in my life you know, maybe it's not an issue that relates, that you've struggled with as much, but maybe you can, maybe it is. And so maybe you say, you know, Lord's helped me grow in this area a lot. And, and here's how it's happened. And here's some of the truths from God's word that's helped me. But ultimately, what I needed most and what you need most is to see these things actually applied effectively requires the spirit of God to help you and to transform you um, it's this dependent responsibility that we have, but we, we have to know that our sins are forgiven first and that we're right with God before we're right with men, right? Uh, we cannot be right with men if we're not right with God, right? If you're gonna have a, you know, one of my, um, one of my friends would say, if, you have to have, if there's uh, two people having a conflict, you, you need to get them to have a trialogue, not just a dialogue, right? It's not just about getting them to communicate better with each other. They have a problem with God. One of, there's a breakdown. So, uh, so you're just explaining these principles. And well, did I take them through the Romans road? No, but not yet at least. But I've, what I've done is I've showed that, hey, the gospel is so relevant. And if you're going to have a right relationship with other people, you're missing the most foundational part. It's, you have to have a right relationship with God. And then of course, you know, where are you at with the Lord? You know, what is your background? You know, and you just ask them questions and you're just keeping it going. And, and I think you're trying to uh, understand what they're saying. Like, we don't want to have a cookie-cutter approach to anyone, right? What we'll learn from this series in part is there are biblical principles, you know, when we talk much later about like, what does the Bible say about anger? What does the Bible say about depression? What does the Bible say about lust and sexual sin? What does the Bible say about parenting, about marriage? And you're going to see that there's principles there that we want to go to and see. But every situation is somewhat unique and different. So we don't have a cookie-cutter approach. We're like, well, this worked for this person. So, exact same. Now, same principles, yeah, that we're going to bring to bear, but there's complicating factors and all this. So we just get to know the person, and, and, but we uh, are able to constantly weave back in at, at key points where it's appropriate and say, but you know what? Your greatest need is, is Christ, and that would just totally transform your life. And, uh, and so, I, obviously, that's going to depend on how much time you have and whatnot, but I think you can you can lead with biblical principles and say, you know what, this is how God has helped me think about this issue. But you always are caveating it and bringing it back to, you know, you might explain the wisdom of God in this area of parenting or of marriage or of communication, but ultimately say, but you know what, uh, the goal is not just to have better, you know, to make ourselves feel better and or even you might say it like this, you know, our goal, God, God doesn't have as our goal to change our circumstances always, but to be God-honoring in our circumstances. And uh, the Bible can totally help us with that. But if your goal is just to change your circumstances, I can't help you. I mean, when we are trying to help other people, that is a non-starter. If someone says, you know, if someone say, comes and says, well, actually, this is a, a story I had one time. Uh, one of my professors said he had a couple come to him for counseling. And he says, you know, what are you here for? And they're, oh, we just want to, uh, we, we want a better marriage. We want to, uh, or no, this is what it was. Uh, the, the man came, his wife was leaving him. Says, I'm leaving. I don't want anything to do with you. Packed up, left. And he comes desperate to the pastor and says like, oh, my wife left. I don't know what to do. And he says, well, okay, well, how can I help you? What do you want? What, what is your goal? And he says, well, I just want to get my wife back. And the counselor said, I can't help you. Can't help you. And he's like, what do you mean? I mean, you're the pastor. You're supposed to help me. He says, if that's your goal, 
I got nothing to offer you. And uh, he's like, okay, so what's the catch? <laughs> you know, like, and he says, well, I can't change your wife's heart. I can't change your circumstances. And God may not change your circumstances. I don't know what his purposes are. But what we can do is we can help you be a biblical kind of man. We can help you be God's kind of man. We can help you apply the truth to your own heart and change. Now, will your wife come back? I don't know. She might. She might see a change in you, and her heart might change, and there might be reconciliation. But it's also possible that the Lord works in your heart, and there's, there isn't reconciliation. But you are still going to be committed to being God's kind of man. If you're interested in that, I can help you. That's like what Richie said, you know. If you're interested in going to the Bible for that, we can totally help. So God is not always concerned about changing our circumstances, but making us into Christ-like followers in the midst of our circumstances. And so, that, I mean, that is like pure gospel right there, but it's not like, you know, it, that is the deep um, implications of the gospel, you might say. And, 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 then, you, and you're, then you're getting into how satisfying it is to know Christ and to walk in his will. And, um, and so, those kind of thought-provoking type responses to people um, are, are going to be gold for helping them in the long term. I know that's not like a specific, like, one, two, three strategy, but maybe just a more uh, thing. All right. We still went over time with questions, but uh, many more to come, I hope. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, we we're just scratched the surface here and getting at this, but Lord, we want, we desperately want to be a church that cares well for the people here. We want to love one another as you've loved us. We want to be patient with one another. We want to be ministering to the needs uh, that are here. And Lord, we know we just, that uh, we all need to be involved in this because there are so many needs, both suffering and sinning. And we just, we all need to be equipped at some level to help one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, um, to help each other live the Christian life, to honor you, to become more Christ-like regardless of our circumstances. And so we pray that to that end, Lord, that we would be conformed to your image, by your spirit, through your word, in the context of your people, um, from one degree of glory to another. In Jesus' name, amen.